First Peter, if you would turn there tonight. First Peter, we're going to read verses 18 through 25. First Peter 2, 18 through 25. Uh, tonight's title is Responding Right When You Are Wronged. Responding Right When You Are Wronged. 1 Peter 2.18 reads, Servants, be subject, submissive. It's a big theme, and I'm going to spend some time developing it tonight before we get to the actual text. Be subject or submissive to your masters with all respect. Remember, this is a shame and honor culture, and respecting people, showing their value, attempting to keep the values of the society around you was huge. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, that little two verses have that little bracketing of this gracious thing uh, so tonight it's of grace. We're going to show that. For to this you have been called, because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now, or have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want to pose a question tonight as we begin. Are you a reactor or a responder? There is in most people's minds a difference between those two. Uh, most people think of or define reactor as a person who quickly and emotionally speaks and acts in an adverse and difficult circumstance. And so someone who just, someone zero to 60, someone says. Someone who is in a difficult circumstance, someone says something, does something to them, they're unjustly treated, those three things tonight, and they are quick and emotionally controlled, basically, with the things that come out of their mouth, by and large. Someone who responds, a responder in comparison or contrast to a reactor, is someone who is more deliberate. Instead of responding quickly, they kind of think through it, take a little bit more time, a little slower, and they thoughtfully have words and actions in adverse and difficult circumstances. So there is quite an opposite uh, definition of those two things. Now, I, if we're honest tonight, um, we all have been reactors and still struggle and fight against it at times. And we all would like to think that we are, need to be better responders. So let me put some things out there to you, and you answer them in your heart. How have you done when it comes to COVID-19? Are you a reactor or a responder? How do you respond to having to wear a mask all the time? Being restricted and what you can do and where you can go, being told what you can and can't do. Um, 
Have you responded well to that? Has it been emotional? Has it been critical or slanderous even of people in authority that tell you what you can and can't do? How have you done when it comes to racial differences and disagreements? Have you been quick to judge without getting all the information? Have you really heard from other people's opinions or you just formed them without having all the information? How have you done in your relationship with your job? How have you responded if COVID has cost you your job? How do you like working from home? How do you like having to go into work? How do you respond or react to those things? Have you reacted or responded to our government in the last few months and the things that have been passed down? Were you respond you, you respond very well to the stimulus package that you got, but reacted very harshly to other things that weren't to your liking? Are you planning to react or respond when it comes to the election here in a short couple months? How have you handled all the changes in your kids going to school and how that's changed your schedule? See, now, see I'm just listing things that came to my mind. Um, there are many, many more and many ones of smaller events and importance in your life that we do all the time. But the Bible is very clear that every single person and, and mainly Christians obviously have a responsibility as a Christian through God to respond like Jesus. It's not just that we as Christians respond differently than people who aren't Christians. It's more than that. We should respond like Jesus. And the question that I would bring to you tonight is, do you know what that even is? Do you know what it looks like? And when it comes to suffering in particular or being mistreated or enduring injustices... Often, I think that there's not a lot we can do to control our circumstances and situations, but here's what I know that is always true. You may not be able to control your circumstances or situations, but you can always control your response or your reaction to them. And that's what I want to spend time concentrating on tonight. Let me just start by developing a little bit of the context of 1 Peter and what was happening because it's crucial to understanding how we should respond based on how they needed to respond. Because in the first century, or fast forward to the 21st century, the context may be different because we're in a democracy and they were in an imperial-type worship situation of a dictatorship. But many of the principles are still the same. First Peter was written about AD 65. And let me tell you what that means. That means that no matter who you think is bad in government and how corrupt they are, They didn't even touch how bad Nero was because he was the emperor of Rome. He was about as immoral, violent, and repugnant of a person that you could ever imagine on every way, shape, or form. He he was ruler. He was persecuting Christians at that time because even though he had set fire by accident to Rome, he was blaming them. And many of them were into the arena because of it. Many of them were burning as torches because of it to light parties by him. And uh, that was what they were going through. And though, so therefore, if you read First Peter from beginning to end, you'll find that it is littered with terms like this. Suffering 14 times. Trials, testing, and even terms like fiery ordeal. Because literally, fiery ordeal is what they were facing. On top of all of that, it's an honor and shame culture. And that means this, that people highly esteem social values. In other words, if by and large, everyone in Rome and Roman colonies and, and places that Rome controlled lived a certain way, valued certain things, if you didn't, then you were very much looked down on and actually were considered a menace 
to the well-being and peace of society in Roman times. And it could cost you. Christians were people who rejected popular Roman social values on almost every level. And may I say, unlike today. So Peter writes this epistle to them, this letter, challenging believers about how they will face, how they will face these difficulties and possibly even painful and harmful life-threatening circumstances, which I'm trying to tell you in America may not be as far off as you think. Would the people Peter wrote to, would they be responders or would they be reactors? And the main just or the main part of this letter in chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3 and verse 12 is where the main part of this message is given and our text falls within those parameters. One unique facet of this epistle, which I think is really incredible, is that the word Christian, by the way, disciple is used 250 some times in the New Testament. Christians only use three times. So in my opinion, it might be good for us to use Christian less because it's pretty meaningless in our culture anymore. But follower of Jesus still has a lot of potency. Um, But in their day, Christian was just becoming popular and it's used three times, two times in the book of Acts. The only time in the entire New Testament outside of the book of Acts is this epistle, chapter 4 and verse 16. And it has to do with suffering. He says, if you suffer as a Christian then that is good. That's a good thing. But don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't suffer because you're doing wrong. You're responding to culture in the wrong way. Don't do that. But suffering as a Christian, you see what he says? Because you're a little Christ trying to be like Christ, that's what, that's what Christianity should be doing in your life. Being a Christian should, in one sentence, it should help you respond rightly when you are treated wrongly. So how did, here's the question, if we're going to be little Christs, how did, can I say, big Christ respond when he was treated unjustly? Well, that's what our text is going to answer tonight. So let me give you the text again, verse 18 through 25. And let me start off by saying this as we read it and go over it piece by piece, that the first thing you need to know, and I'm going to split it into two categories, If you're going to respond like Jesus to suffering injustices, you're going to need two things. You're going to have to be able to have a cruciform attitude. And cruciform is a word that means conform to the cross. In other words, we're going to get our cues from cross, not the culture we live in. Because you're going to find tonight when I'm done that everything our culture is doing in response to injustices is completely the opposite of what Jesus does. So you're going to have to have a cruciform attitude, which by and large, by the Spirit of God, will lead to cruciform actions. And by the way, if you don't have cruciform attitudes that are grounded in the cross, you'll never be able to even comprehend how the actions that are demanded of you in this passage could even be possible. Here's a key word, which I would control, in my opinion, as I study 1 Peter, I call it the controlling attitude. The attitude that in this middle section of 1 Peter talks about suffering and responding to it is absolutely key. And I want to show you. It's the word submissiveness or submissive or as the ESV uses it, be subject. It means to put yourself under other people's authority. Let me show you how it works in our passage and how crucial it is on every level of relationships that Peter addresses. 
first time is chapter 2 and verse 3. If you have a pen, start drawing lines or circling these things so you can put it, the whole piece together in your mind. He says, be subject. See it at verse 13? It's the imperative. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So he's going to tell you how you need to respond to government, which would be a good lesson for the vast majority of us because we're not doing well with it. And he says, to, whether it's the emperor who is supreme. Now remember who that is. This is Nero, who's about as diabolical and nasty as a leader that you could ever imagine. Okay? Whether it be the emperor or a governor sent by those who punish to do evil or, or, or to do evil and to praise those who... The government's supposed to punish evil and praise those who do good, but Nero is doing the opposite. But you know what he says to them? Be subject to them. Submit to that. For this is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorant of foolish people. And three times in the text, he's going to use it. Three times, he says, for the Lord's sake. A little later, he says, living as servants of God. Then he goes on to say, this is the will of God. And you'll never understand, you'll never be able to grasp, how in the world can I submit to a guy like that who's leading us? Because it's about God, not about you, about God. It's his will. You do it for him, not for the person who's in charge. And you are God's servant, and this is what God has asked you to do. So you obey because you're his servant. Whatever status or whatever position you have in life, anywhere else, that identity isn't what controls your identity. Your identity is that you are the slave of God. And so when he tells you things, this is why you do it. And he says this, look at the end of the passage. Now this would be, this is almost, I'm going to exaggerate, almost never practiced today in America. And I would say by a vast majority of Christians included. Listen to this phrase. Do you find this incredibly impossible? Honor everyone. Everyone, are you kidding? Including Nero and people like that? Yes, honor everyone. Listen to this. Love the brotherhood, fear God. Whoa, whoa, ready? Honor the emperor. Are you serious? There's not a more dishonorable man than him. And and here's what he says. Honor him. Show honor to him. Now, see, to most of us who live in this culture, we don't show honor to people who don't deserve it. We don't. We only honor people if we agree with them, if we like all of their policies. And if it doesn't say agree with them. It doesn't say, I'll use the 21st century, it doesn't say vote for them. It says honor them. Honor the position because God has put together government and God puts up kings and down others. He proved that with Nebuchadnezzar. So here it is. We are subversive. And the way that we subvert our culture is not by overthrowing it, but by powering under it. And that is about as subversive as it gets. But only when you have the cross as leading your life in every single way possible could you even grasp that that would accomplish anything of value. Now, on top of all of that, listen to this. Subject yourself Submit when he's going to start the next paragraph. So not only to everybody who's a a culture, to the government, but now let me get really specific. He says, servants, be subject to your masters. See, now I'm going to tell you about people who are already not free. So you you have to subject yourself or submit yourself to your masters with all respect. Not, Not just doing it because you have to with an attitude. No, but with respect, he says. Now, now he's not even done, if, if, not, if that wasn't enough already. Watch this. Not only to the good and gentle, you have a good master who treats you right as if you're not even slave, 
and he really treats you good, fantastic. Show him respect, submit to him. But this is what he says this. But also to the unjust, to a guy who doesn't treat you. And in the passage, he talks about if you only do what's right when you're beaten. So he's basically saying, hey, if you're beaten at times in this culture, you respond differently because you're a Christian, even when you're treated unjustly, he says. So how in the world would you do that? Well, here's the thing. And you have to get this in all the texts. See what verse 19 says? For this is a gracious thing. So your natural response to people who treat you unjustly in government, in employee, your boss, in their case, a master to a slave, what would be our natural response? Well, we showed it tonight. Anger, possible bitterness, depression. You're going to lash out. You're going to return evil for evil if you possibly can. You're going to let them know in no uncertain terms what you think of them. But here's what the Bible says. That's the natural thing to do. But what is the gracious thing to do? The gracious thing to do would be the complete opposite of that. And he goes into detail about that if you want to read it in the very next chapter, 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, when they, when they curse you, you return it with blessing. How do you do that? See the next phrase, verse 19? For this is a gracious thing when what? When someone is mindful of God. See, this is the crux of it. We don't think of God. And the word mindful is the same Greek word for conscience. When our, we, we don't have a conscience to do the cruciform thing because we're not thinking of God. We're not thinking about how, how he would want us to respond and how, he would, how his son Jesus did it and what he did for us when he was mistreated. That is not on our mind. We are following cultural cues, what everybody else is doing. We're trying to get one up. You know why? Because we're living by what comes naturally, not supernaturally. We're not doing the gracious thing. We're not. So are you mindful of God? Are you mindful of God when you respond to injustices? Does your attitude and your actions invoke people to wonder where you get the grace from to respond that way? And do people say of you, look what they said to her and look what she did in return? How? I would never, they should say this, I would never do that. That's what they should say. Do you bring God into the equation? Do you think through how he would want you to respond based on how Jesus responded? So there's a structure in this passage. Let me point it out to you real quickly. In our passage, 18 through 25, the imperative is be subject. Be subject, and it doesn't, doesn't really matter what kind of master you have. And then he's going to give you four reasons, and they're all marked off for us. Ready? Verse 19 starts with a little word for. Circle it, see? And then verse 20 has again, for. Verse 21 has it. It says for. And then verse 25 has it. For. You see that? He's going to say, here's my command to you. You submit yourself. And when everybody else is powering over, you power under. And I'm going to give you four reasons why you should. And in those four reasons, he's going to give you the prime thing is you follow the pattern and model of Jesus. Now, let me say up front, when Jesus suffered on the cross, there was a lot of things unique about what he did that we cannot emulate or be, follow his example in the sense that he suffered uniquely as our redeemer. He suffered for our sins. He accomplished our salvation. So in no way, shape, or form do I think our suffering is equal to 
his and the purpose that it does. But, but as a principle, we can follow it in application to the times when we are mistreated. And that's what we're to get tonight. So let me give you the four things. One at a time, let me unpack them real quick. Number one, we've already said it, verse 19. The first four was it takes grace to be submissive to unjust people. If you think that all the things in this passage you can do by mustering it up on your own, you are hugely mistaken because it's the natural thing is what's going to control you. And only when God's grace supernaturally controls you could you ever have these attitudes and actions. And Peter wants his people to know up front, you need God to act like Jesus. <laughs> you need God. And can I tell you this? We need a lot more of it. We need a lot more of it. But not only this, let me go to the second one in verse 20. See the little four? Secondly, it not only takes God's grace, it takes your goodness. Your goodness. Verse 20 says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, don't be, it's not any good to endure and be patient when you're doing wrong and that's why you get beaten. He says, here's what you ought to do instead. But if when you, here's the key, when you do good and suffer for it, oh, that, that's what happens. Now, in our text, I don't have time to give it to him. I'm just going to tell you the verses. 15 times, 15 times in chapter 2 through 4, um, Peter dwells on this concept of you doing good in response to doing evil. It is a huge thing. He does it in chapter 2, verse 12, 14, 15, 18, 20, Chapter 3, 6, 11, 13, twice in 16, 17, 21, chapter 4, verses 10 and 19. And he says, you, you are good. You do good works. You do good, he says. Over and over again, virtually the same phrases, 15 different times. Here's how he wants you to know. Do you want to make a difference in a culture that treats you unjustly? Here's what you do. Not evil, bad things, good things. Do good things. And here's the catch, ready? In case you didn't think he would think of it, he wants you to know that those in authority over you will not always be doing good back to you. And so he says this, and I'm going to read him for you. Chapter 3 and verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil. He's going to use evil again. Chapter 3, verse 10. Next verse. Here's what you're going to be afraid of. It's a quotation. Let him keep his tongue from evil. Here it he knows. You're going to be trying to do good but out of your mouth is going to come such awful things. When you get a chance, when your boss is not around and your buddies are there and you're frustrated and fed up, you know what's going to come out of your mouth? It, better, it should be good things, but too many times the temptation is bad things. Bad things about those in leadership in our country. Bad things about people that you disagree with. And he says, Here's the, don't let your tongue be filled with evil. And it's a problem. It is all over the internet. All over. It is. Next verse, 311, let him turn away from evil and do good. So it's got to be intentional. See, the natural tendency is I want to do evil. I want to make fun of them. I want to slander them. I want to tell everybody how rotten they are and how stupid their opinions are. How could you think such a thing? That's what we want to do all the time. He says, no, turn away from that and do good instead. Chapter 3 and verse 12. I mean, this is four straight verses. He says, the Lord, this is a quotation from the psalm, the Lord's face is against those who do evil. Now, isn't it crazy? I find, as I read people on the internet, Christians who post things, and they think they are standing up for God and God is honored in it. And wouldn't it be ironic that it actually 
His face is turned against them, and he hates what they're doing. Here's what it says. The Lord's face, if you're talking evil, lack of respect, you're not giving honor. Here's what he says. I'm against that kind of stuff. And then he says, top it off, chapter 3 and verse 17, he goes, it's better for you to do good than to do evil. I mean, so he doesn't just say, hey, here's how you make a difference. It's going to take God's grace in your life. Yes, but that grace ought to produce goodness in you. Goodness when the temptation and the natural thing to do would be evil. Evil out of your mouth, evil actions, evil things that you say. He says you need to have patience in enduring things. Can I ask you, is there any room? Is there any room anymore? for patient endurance. He says it in verse 19 and in verse 20. In other words, he says, but if you patiently endure suffering for doing good, if, do we have to have God vindicate us immediately? That everything happened wrong to you have to be righted now? You're going to have a real struggle. I mean a real struggle with God and with being a Christian, if you think that everything that goes wrong in our culture and everything that personally goes wrong in your life, that God has to do something almost immediately or very quickly or he doesn't care, you're going to find yourself in a huge amount of trouble. Which leads me to the third one in verse 21. See the four? And this is the explanation of the previous one. So how, how do we endure patiently doing good when nobody does good back to us. How does that accomplish anything, Pastor Walker? Ready? For to this you have been, circle it, called. This is not an option for elite superstar Christians. This is the obligation of everyone who would follow Christ into this verse in his steps. You want to be like Jesus? This part is included. Paul put it this way when he wrote of his aim in life in Philippians 3.10. He says, that I might know him, ready, and the power of his resurrection, we're good so far, and the fellowship of his sufferings, oops, being made conformable unto his death. We want to be like Jesus, but we don't want the unto his death part, and we don't want the fellowship of his sufferings part. The power of his resurrection, hallelujah. <laughs> Paul says they both are included. He says this is the attitude that every Christian should have. You know what that means? What it means is that we are called to suffer. Hear me? It's your vocation. It is part and partial of what it means to be a Christian. That means this. It means to be a Christian is to be misunderstood. To be a Christian is to be criticized. To be a Christian is to be ignored, to be marginalized. To be a Christian means to suffer for doing good for what is right as expected of things in our culture. Chapter 4, he goes so far as to say, brothers, don't think it strange the fiery trials. This is not, you should not go, oh my word, what's happening? No, we should consider this. I, I knew it was coming. <laughs> this isn't an odd thing to me. He says, don't think it's strange. Because this is what it means to be a Christian. So let me tell you, let this sink in deeply. 
When you do right as a Christian, you will suffer for it. You will be criticized for it. You will be ignored for it. Sometimes when you do right, things will not get better. They will get worse. Sometimes people will say hurtful things about you when you say good things about them. You will not be appreciated for it the vast majority of time. You will not. And when we say those things from the pulpit and you hear them, you know what the average expectation is? It's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. The opposite. Because what happens to us is we feel if we're treated like that, we've been violated and we want to be vindicated because we have done what is right and nobody should be able to say or stand against that. And so here's what Peter says. Let me leave you a different kind of example. Verse 21. You've been called to this, so I'm not going to just tell you, hey, theory-wise, suffer like Jesus. No, he's going to give us concrete examples in the last 10 minutes. He calls them steps, so let me call them that. Three steps. If you want to follow in the steps of Jesus and be like him and how he suffered injustice, and by the way, if you, if you feel bad for yourself and think you're a victim and you start having a pity party for how bad it is, let me tell you this. You haven't begun to suffer like Jesus and you never will. No one deserved to be treated better than he did who was treated as bad as he was. No one suffered more injustice as the perfect sinless son of God than he did. So it says, I'm going to leave you example, hupogrammaton. It means to write over. When kids were learning how to write, they would have a slate and there would be a plat, like a template put on top of it. And they would learn to write the letters in Greek by tracing over the top of the original And so here's what Jesus says. I want you to be like me. I'm the original. Put your life on top of me. Put your life on top. And I'm the template by which you measure how you respond or react to your difficulties and suffering and mistreatment and injustice. See if you are being accurate. So it's not a perfect pattern because we'll never be like Jesus altogether, which is not excusatory. But it's a pattern a principled pattern of what he was like. So what does it mean to follow in his steps? He's going to give them to each one marked off by the word who. See it there? Verse 22 and 23, and I believe 24 all have that. Chapter 2, verse 22 is the first one. And it reads, well, who in the New King James? He, he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, write this down, because I may or may not at the end have time to develop it. All three of these examples, including the last verse, are all paraphrased or exact quotations from Isaiah 53. Okay, if you don't know anything about Isaiah 53, which I know you do, all we like sheep have gone astray, that's quoted here. But it's the passage of, there are four passages or texts about the suffering servant. So if you go back to Isaiah, this is what the Messiah would be like when he comes. He would suffer. And so this is a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus is saying that he did, and now he wants you to live it out like he did. So what is the first one? Look at verse 22. He did, the Bible says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And that is an Isaiah chapter 53 quote. So here's the first thing we're going to face problems with if we're going to be like Jesus. The first step is this. you got to guard your mouth. The Bible says that he did not sin with his mouth. So verbal sin is a real temptation. No deceit. No lies. He wasn't putting things on the internet, quote unquote, 
that weren't true, half true, partial true. You weren't putting things on there um, to get people into trouble. And, and I, I circled it in my Bible. Verses 22 and 23 have not three times. So can I tell you this? If you want to be like Jesus when you are being unjustly treated, it's just as important you think about the things you're not going to do and say as if the things you are. Remember how he importantly right now, he said this, do good, do good, do good, do Here's what he says, and don't do evil, don't do evil. See, it is the positive and the negative. And here's what Jesus did not do. He did not open his mouth with lies. When on the cross, by the way, the only times he talked about his enemies who were killing him unjustly were to say good things. Like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That's how Jesus talked. That were the words come out of his mouth. Those were the words. And look what it says very specifically in the next verse. It says, when he, verse 23, was reviled, he did not revile in return. In other words, you say this about me, I'm going to say this about you, and one more. The word revile <coughs> is the same word used in chapter 3 and verse 9. It's the same word used uh, in the Gospels to talk about the lesti, the insurrectionists to Rome who hung on either side of Jesus and how the Bible says when they talked to Jesus at first, they reviled him. In other words, what kind of Messiah are you? You can't be a Messiah. That's awful. How could you be hanging on a cross? Where's your power? You can't be, that kind of stuff. That's the kind, how could you be this? How could you be this? You can't be this. You're terrible. How could you, that's how we talk about people. He says that kind of stuff never came out of Jesus' mouth. When, he, when people reviled him, they were making fun of him, making him feel awful, saying hurtful things, telling him how awful he was. You could never be the Messiah. You can't be crucified and be God's chosen one. And on and on the list goes. You know what he said? Nothing. Nothing. And by the way, because someone says nothing when they're accosted doesn't mean they're doing nothing. Because the example that he's given to us, part of the example that we follow that's powerful is that he didn't say anything. Not the things he didn't do. So silence isn't always yellow. So secondly, verse 23, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile again. But here's what he did. When he suffered, when he was suffering physical violence, it says, he did not threaten. And, and stop for a second and think about that. You could threaten people, and it probably doesn't have a lot of weight to it. But Jesus in the garden, when they grabbed him, and Peter took off the, you know, and tried to cut the guy's head off, Jesus says, put your sword away. Why? What did he tell Peter he should? Because if Jesus wanted to, what did he say he could do? He could call what? 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels. That would have been far more than enough to take care of any paltry Jewish guards. So could Jesus have done it? When they came to arrest him, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am God's name. What do they all do? 300 of them, they fall on the ground. Did he have power? All he had to do is say God's name and that would have been enough. Does he do it? No. And that just makes the example that much greater. He had cosmic power. Listen, and he chose not to use it. Is that what takes place in our world? No, people are unjustly treated and they take every opportunity they have to power over and be violent. That's what's taking place. 
and the problem is, is that so unlike our master, his threats, if he did them, he didn't. But if he did, they were not empty ones. But he never made them. He never made them. In contrast, what did he do? Verse 23. But instead, here's what he continued to do. In other words, he was doing it before they reviled him, and he was doing it during they reviled him, and after they reviled him. What was he doing? He continued to entrust himself. And the word is used in chapter 4 and verse 19 of 1 Peter, where it says, and they, you should entrust God with the keeping of your soul. In other words, when people threaten violence against you and they could kill your physical body, you still continue to do the right thing. Why? Because God will keep your soul, and that's what matters. The word is used often throughout Greek literature to give someone who is your close friend the things that are valuable to you the most so that they can keep them for you. And here's what God's saying. You know what Jesus said? The whole circumstance, the whole situation, his own very life, which he knew was going to end, he says, God, I keep trusting you with it. And I know that no matter what the outcome is, good or bad, I know that I can trust whatever's my soul most valuable to me. God, I entrust it to you. That's why I don't have to say anything. That's why I don't have to revile back. That's why I don't have to get revenge. That's why I don't have to be violent. That's why I can keep my mouth closed. Because I trust God. Jesus handled the whole situation, handed the whole thing over to his father, and here's what he says, and I can trust you to do what's best. And when you do that, can I say it? You are not saying justice doesn't matter. What you're saying is that God is the final judge, and one day he's going to put all counts to be right. So let me apply it. Racism will not have the last say. God will. Abusers, they will not have the last say. God will. God will have the last day. And you know what he wants? You know what Jesus did and he wants us to do? Defer to God. You don't have to take it into your own hands. You don't have to say those things. You don't have to do those things. Entrust yourself, your cause, and even your accusers into the hands of God. Now, sometimes God works through present circumstances to overcome and vindicate us in this life. Most times he does not. But can I tell you, don't be disheartened by that because Revelation 6.16 says that those who treated and abused God's people, when Jesus comes, it says, and they try to hide themselves under the rocks and into the mountains and into the caves, from the face of him who sits on the throne, and they could not. They tried to hide themselves everywhere they could possibly hide, but you'll, they'll, you know why? Because Jesus will make it right. He will make it right, and you can't hide from it, he says. I know that in our culture today, it is easy to say, the other person, and this is what people mostly say, The other person deserves to be shown up, brought to justice, paid back, and therefore I have the right to make sure that happens, that I can use slander and criticism and put-downs and threats and grudges to make sure that that person gets what they deserve. That is the common language and response that takes place today. What is said less and less all the time is something like this. I have been unjustly treated, and they deserve to be shown up, brought to justice, and rebuked, and worse but I will not be bitter. I will not retaliate. 
I will not slander. I will not return evil for evil. And I choose to bless instead of curse. But you'd have to trust God to do that. The last four is verse 25. See it? For you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Verse 24 is talking about Jesus' cross, and he bore our sins on the body on the tree. And so here's the point of the last two verses. Jesus died for your sins, that you may what? Fill in the blank. That you may die to your sins. See? Your sins of the things you would lie about and say wrongly and how you respond and how you would be verbal abuse and violence. He, he died so that you wouldn't have to do that. So you, he died for your sins so you wouldn't have to die in your sins so that you could die to them. That's what he wants. Jesus chose to suffer unjustly because he trusted God who judged justly. But you have to be able to have a future view and a faith that looks forward to what God does to be able to do that when it doesn't happen in this world. And so he lastly reminds us, last four, for you were, you what? You were like sheep going astray, Isaiah 53, 6. But look, notice, but now, he says, see the term? You were this, but now you're this. That is a structure for radical revolutionary change. And here's what he said. Can I tell you tonight? This is the key. Here's why we get so easy to point the finger at everybody else, because we forget that we're sinners. We forget that we're guilty. We forget, right? How gracious God has been to We forget we were sheep going astray. We were not coming to God. We were walking the other way. And he turned us around through his cross and his grace. And he brought us back. And he takes care of our soul. But it wasn't always like that. It wasn't always like that. You see, you've returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And if Jesus, the suffering servant, had to do that to turn you around... What should you and I be willing to do that for others so that they would turn around? Can't we lay down our rights a little bit even? Can't we have a little bit of patient endurance? Can't we see people through different kinds of eyes? Can't we believe the best for just a minute until we know otherwise? Jesus did. And it's what makes his model and example to follow so radical and revolutionary and so, unfortunately, few people who adopt it. But by his grace, may it be demonstrated more through God's people at Faith Baptist Church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. If we haven't experienced it already, we will. And many in our congregation have experienced it a good part of their life in so many ways. But it's so easy to follow the world and its pattern and its example. But it isn't the example of Jesus. It's not wrong for us at times to say things. Paul at times used his rights as a Roman citizen not to be beaten, and sometimes he didn't. So Lord, give us discernment and wisdom to know when to do it. But the pattern, the cruciform pattern of Jesus is the mainstay. It's what's primary for us, especially during suffering for being a Christian. Help us to follow that. Help us to get it in our hearts and minds now that we might live like him who died for us and was raised on the third day. For it's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.